The last time we were together, we started in Matthew chapter 19, and we made our way through about half the chapter dealing with the very challenging stuff that Jesus said about divorce and marriage and celibacy, and then he blessed the children, sort of giving a a well-rounded picture of Jesus's and God's concern for the entire family. Now, when we come to verse 16, the scene shifts a little bit, but we just remind ourselves Jesus is on the way to Jerusalem. That's the bigger picture. He's on his way to Jerusalem. Verse 16. Now behold, one came and said to him, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? So he said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is, God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. Now, the man started out with a question to Jesus, simply asking, what good thing shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, this question from this man demonstrates that he, like virtually all people by nature, had an orientation towards earning eternal life. When he thought about gaining eternal life, he thought about earning it. What do I do? What shall I do so that I may inherit eternal life? He wanted to know what good works, what noble deeds he could do to gain eternal life. It's very interesting. All three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, tell us that this man was rich. Matthew tells us that he was young. That's down in verse 22. And Luke tells us that he was a ruler. And so from the three of them together, we get calling this man the rich, young ruler. And so in this, Jesus responded to the man who asked this question, what good work, what noble deed must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus answered with another question, verse 17, why do you call me good? Now, please understand, in asking this, Jesus was not denying his own goodness. Jesus, well, I'm not good. Why do you call me good? That wasn't the idea at all. Instead, Jesus asked the man, do you understand what you say when you call me good? Because that's how he addressed Jesus in verse 16. Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? It was as if Jesus said something like this. You come to me asking about what good thing you can do to inherit eternal life. But what do you really know about goodness? Now, the the argument here is very clear. Either Jesus was good and, or I should say, he ought not to have been called good. But the Bible tells us there is none good but God. And that's what Jesus was trying to get this guy's head around. Look, you call me good, but if you call me good, and especially when we consider about this radical things that Jesus said, He has to be much more than a good man. He has to be the God man. I don't know if you've ever thought deeply upon this or read some of the great writings of some of the great apologists of the Christian church or some of the more popular apologists. I think of where I first read and was familiar with this argument. It was in the writings of C.S. Lewis, where C.S. Lewis put forth very logically that it's a big mistake for us to consider that Jesus was just a good man, okay? Because Jesus claimed to be much more than a good man. He claimed to be God in human flesh. Now look, if a person claims to be God in human flesh, but they are not, then they're not good, right? Matter of fact, you're very bad. 
You're making a very bad claim because you claim to be something not just supernatural. You claim to be someone divine. But if your claim is false, you're not good. Therefore, if Jesus is good, he's much more than good. Maybe you've heard it expressed upon these lines, and I don't mean to get too far off the trail here, but I'll just say this quickly. In the, what some people call the trichotomy, that Jesus is either a liar or he's a lunatic or he's Lord. And you take this based on Jesus' claim to be God. If a man comes along and claims to be God, either he knows he's not God, and therefore he's a liar, or he thinks he is God, and he's really not, that would make him a lunatic, right? Or he thinks he is God, and he really is, and that would make him Lord. Something along these lines of logic is what Jesus is trying to point this rich young ruler towards. And so Jesus brings it back to the man's personal life in verse 17, where he says, if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. Jesus' answer to the man's question was very straightforward. After shaking him up a little bit about his understanding about goodness and who Jesus was, now Jesus enters into the point very plainly where he says, listen, if you want to gain eternal life by doing, then you must keep the commandments and you must keep all the commandments and you must keep them in the fullest sense. In other words, if you want to be saved by doing, you have to do it perfectly. Just go out now, keep the commandments. Go ahead and do it all. Keep all the commandments, and then you can be saved by doing. Verse 18, the man replies to Jesus saying, He said to him, which ones? Jesus said, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these things I have kept from my youth, what do I still lack? Now, beginning in verse 18, Jesus begins to recite different commandments from the great law of God. And first, he began with the commandments that deal primarily with man's relationship to man, right? Do not murder. That, that's a, a, a commandment that fundamentally deals with my relationship to fellow human beings. Um, what were the other ones? Uh, do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. All these things which primarily deal with man's relationship with man, the young man claimed in response to this, all these things I have kept from my youth. He claimed to fulfill all God's commands regarding how we must treat other people. Now, there's a few things to say about that. First of all, notice that God isn't assessing him. Jesus isn't assessing him yet by the laws that apply between us and God, right? There's commandments that God gives us regarding our relationship to him, and then there's other commandments that God gives us regarding our relationship that we have with one another. First, he's just talking about what we might call the horizontal relationships, right? Later, he'll talk to him about the vertical relationships, but right now it's just the horizontal relationships, and the guy's response was, all these things I've kept from my youth. Now, it's a very fair question to ask, if, these man, if this man had really kept these commandments. 
I mean, after all, one of these commandments about, uh, you know, how we treat one another is, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not lie. Is it conceivable that this man had never once lied in his life? Now, it is likely that he actually did keep them in a way that made him righteous in the eyes of men in the very same sense that Saul of Tarsus, later known as Paul the Apostle, right? That he could say, this is what he says in Philippians 3.6, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, I was blameless. Paul said that with a straight face. In other words, what he's saying is, the way that men in my religious circle measured righteousness, I was perfect. Now, what was wrong with that equation? They measured righteousness in a false way. But according to the way that they measured it, Paul was fine. It's the same way with this man that we call the rich young ruler. Certainly, Paul did not keep, or maybe I should say Saul of Tarsus, And the rich young ruler did not keep the law of God in the full and perfect sense in which Jesus spoke of in the Sermon on the Mount. Do you remember those studies when we were in the Sermon on the Mount? Where Jesus said, listen, you've heard it said that you shall not commit murder. But I say to you that if you hate somebody in your heart, that is a violation of that command as well. You've heard it said that you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that if you lust after a woman in your heart, you've broken that command as well. Jesus was pointing out that these commands apply not only to the outward actions, though they definitely do apply to the outward actions, but they also apply to the attitude of heart. And somebody could never actually murder somebody, but yet transgress the command against murder in their heart. Someone could actually never commit adultery with their life, but they could transgress the command against adultery in their heart. But this man... By the way that they measured righteousness in his religious circle, he felt that he was blameless. Now, in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, it tells us that in response to this man's answer, when he said, yes, I've kept all these things from my youth, it says that the response of Jesus was that he looked at him and he loved him. Jesus had compassion on this man who was so misguided as to think that he really could justify himself before God. But I want you to know something. The man himself knows that he isn't right. Do you understand how he knows he's not right? It's right there in the text. Did you see what it says at the end of verse 20? You saw it. He asks the question, what do I still lack? This tells you right here that the man knew that he had not perfectly kept the law. He knew it somewhere in his conscience, even though all of his religious circles said, no, you're blameless, you're perfect, you've kept it all from your youth. There was somewhere in his conscience that told him he had not because he knew there was still something missing in his life. This prompted the question, what do I still lack? There was something lacking in his life, reflecting something missing in his relationship with God. Now think about it. Think if the man really was sinlessly perfect, even just on a horizontal scale. What would his response to have Jesus been? Hey, cool, I've done all that. Great, thanks, Jesus. I know I've got it. But he knew he didn't have it. There was something inside of him still empty, something still aware that all was not right between him and God. 
It meant a lot that he had this amazing, exemplary life. He was, by all outward appearance, a very righteous man, yet he had a deep dissatisfaction in his life. And so Jesus tells him. He addresses his situation right here in verse 21. Jesus said to him, If you want to be perfect, go sell what you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Jesus gave him a call to put God first in every circumstance of life, to to forsake everything and follow Jesus. It's full obedience on the horizontal scale, right? Not, excuse me, on the vertical scale. I just made the wrong motion here. I, I said horizontal and I moved my hands. Around. I mean on the vertical scale between us and God, right? This is what's important. Jesus is saying, okay, mister, I'm not even going to challenge you on your claim to perfection on the horizontal level. Maybe you have it, but I'll tell you this. You don't love and serve God with everything you can, and I'm going to challenge that in you right now. I want you to leave it all behind, and I want you to forsake it and follow me. And Jesus told the man to do exactly that. Now, when we read this radical call of Jesus Christ to this rich young ruler to say, I want you to forsake everything, sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and come and follow me. And by the way, there's been some amazing men through history who have done exactly that. The, the one that stands out prominently in mind, St. Francis of Assisi. He heard this. He was the, the son of a wealthy merchant in France. And he heard this message and he heard this command of the rich young ruler. And he said, that's exactly what I have to do. And so that's exactly it. He sold everything he had and he gave it away to the poor and he started living a life by faith. But when we hear this radical command of Jesus, I think we make two mistakes. And this is the two common mistakes people make when they hear this radical command. The first mistake is to believe that this applies to everyone. I mean, let's face it. Jesus never made this a general command to all who would follow him. But, but he made it especially to this one rich man whose riches were clearly an obstacle to his discipleship. Jesus never gave a universal command to all rich people to sell everything that they have and to follow him. Jesus didn't say, you can't be rich and be my follower. If you're rich and you're my father, you've got to sell everything you have, give to the poor, and then you can follow me. Jesus never said that. He never made it a general command. No, this was a specific command for this particular rich man. Instead, we know that many rich people can do more good in the world by continuing to make money and by using those resources for the glory of God and for the good of others, right? Listen, if God has gifted a person with the ability to make money, I say to them, listen, keep your heart free from covetousness, but make a lot of money and use it for the glory of God, right? I mean, that's a glorious attitude to have. That's the first mistake we make, is to think that this command of Jesus is universal and applies to everybody. The second mistake we make is to believe that this command applies to no one, where there are clearly people today for whom the very best thing that they could do for themselves spiritually is to radically forsake the materialism that is ruining them. 
And I'm sure that there are today. I'm sure today that there are some rich people in this world that God is contending with. And what God wants them to do is to sell it all and to forget about it and just be a follower of Jesus Christ. So we don't make the one mistake of believing this applies to everyone. But neither do we make the other mistake of believing that it applies to no one. It applies to whom the Spirit would speak this exact word. You see, what we really notice is that this call of Jesus to this man was simply the call that he made to many disciples by saying, follow me. Jesus called this man to be his follower. But but for this man, what it meant to be a follower of Jesus was to leave behind the riches that he had set his heart upon. And that's why he reacted the way he did in verse 22. Did you see that? He went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. In this, the rich young ruler who came and questioned Jesus, he failed utterly because money was his God. He was guilty of idolatry, right? Even if we were to take his word as true, and if he had never sinned on the horizontal level, on the vertical level, money was more important to him than God. Because when Jesus looked him square in the eye and said, I want you to sell everything and follow me, he said, no, I won't do it because money is more important to me. And that is exactly why Jesus, knowing the man's heart, asked him to renounce his possessions. I I like what Spurgeon said about this. He said, this man would be saved by works, yet he would not carry out his works to the full of the law's demand. He failed to observe the spirit of both the second and the first table. He loved not his poor brother as himself. He loved not God in Christ Jesus with all of his heart and soul. So the principle remains. God may challenge and require an individual to give something up for the sake of his kingdom that he still allows to somebody else. There are many who perish eternally because they will not give up what God tells them to give up. Now think about it. There may be something in your life that God speaks to you about and he says, I don't want you to do that. And you know, he may not speak it to anybody else. Everybody else can do it, but not you. Let me use an absurd example. Okay, this is just a silly example, but I think you'll get the the feeling from this example. What if God were to speak to somebody and say, I do not want you to eat apples ever again? Now, again, this is just a, a stupid, silly example, because really it would just apply to some sort of behavior that might at least in some way be considered sinful, right? But what if God spoke to him? I never want you to eat an apple the rest of the You say, well, God, they can eat an apple, and they can eat an apple, and apples are good. No, this is what God has spoken to you. I never want you to do this. That's why I respect it. That's why I respect it, for example, if somebody says, God has told me that I should never drink alcohol. And I said, then great, then don't do it. Now, as, as long as that person doesn't somehow mistakenly believe that that's God's for, command for everybody over all time, I would disagree with that. But if they say to me, no, this is what God has spoken my heart, and other people may be able to partake of it and not have that thing, but God has told me, no, this is not for you. 
That's what he was saying to the rich young ruler. Listen, you, idolater, rich young ruler, if you want to be my follower, you have to sell everything you have, you have to give it to the poor, and you have to follow me. Otherwise, you cannot be my follower. Unfortunately, the man did not, and he went away. You saw it right there in verse 22. He went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Listen, isn't that strange? Jesus was offering him the opportunity to walk away happy, right? He could have walked away rejoicing, but instead he walked away sorrowful. Why? Because he didn't do what Jesus told him to do. And that was radically forsake everything and follow Jesus Christ. It's so tragic. The man should have been happy. I mean, after all, if he was choosing the right way for his life, shouldn't he go, no way, Jesus, I'm going to keep everything I have and go away happy. But he didn't. He went away again with great sorrow. That emptiness, that thing that was within him that caused him to say, what do I still lack? It was still there. It was still empty. It was still missing. And it would be forever until he followed Jesus with everything. Verse 23. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Assuredly, I say to you that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When his disciples heard it, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said to them, With men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Now again, I want you to understand that Jesus begins this little section of speech by saying, Assuredly, I say to you. Hey, listen, friends, listen carefully. Assuredly, I say to you, we shouldn't diminish the strength of Jesus's words, nor should we fail to see the application of what Jesus said in our own affluent society. Can I just say, we call this man who just walked away from Jesus with sorrow in his heart, we call him the rich young ruler. Okay, now I look at a bunch of people, none of you seem rich to me. We all just seem like normal people, right? Would you not agree that every one of us lives a more luxurious life than that rich young ruler ever dreamed of? Every one of us. The most humble, simple living person among us has comforts and luxuries of life that that rich young ruler could only dream of enjoying. So this is for us. When Jesus says in verse 23, It is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Riches are a problem because riches tend to make us satisfied with this life. It makes us too comfortable in this life and not long for the age to come. As well, sometimes riches are sought at the expense of seeking God. So Jesus used a very vivid illustration, did he not? He used the illustration by saying, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Jesus here was probably using a humorous example. 
I know there's people who say that, well, okay, there was actually a gate in the city walls of Jerusalem called the Eye of a Needle, and a camel could get through the Eye of the Needle if he went through on his knees. And what Jesus is saying is that a rich man has to humble himself and go into the kingdom of God as a camel would go through the Eye of a Needle. He's going to get down on his knees and humble himself, and that's how a rich man can enter the kingdom of heaven. I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about. I think Jesus is just saying, here's a camel, which, by the way, would be the largest animal that would be common in those days, right? Here's the largest animal common trying to squeeze through the smallest imaginable hole, the eye of a needle. And he says, it's hard for a rich person to get in heaven. You know, one of the great problems with riches is that they encourage a spirit of false independence, very much like the church of Laodicea. Do you remember what the church of Laodicea said? It's in Revelation chapter 3, verse 17. They said, I am rich, I have become wealthy, and I have need of nothing. Now that all just leads to an emptiness of life, the same emptiness of life that the rich young ruler had. What thing do I still lack? He went away disappointed. And so Jesus warns us, it's hard for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. I wonder if our modern age, we believe that. I I think in our modern age, this is one of those verses that we just really don't believe all that much. Well, it's not any harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than anybody else. No, it is. Riches are like an anchor. And they can make you satisfied that this is the world. can make you not long for the age to come. They, they, they can be things that drag you down spiritually. Now, if we find this hard to believe, we can take great comfort that the disciples found it hard to believe too. Verse 25, it says, When his disciples heard it, they were greatly astonished or exceedingly amazed. The great amazement of the disciples was based on the assumption that riches were always a sign of God's blessing and favor. By the way, they had probably hoped that their following of Jesus would make them rich and influential, prominent leaders in the Messianic government, right? Jesus, why do you think we're supporting you? Why do you think we're following you? Because we believe that you're the Messiah. And when you come into your kingdom and your great status, we're going to be right there with you and we're going to enjoy all the riches of it ourselves. And now Jesus is telling that riches can be an obstacle to the kingdom of God. But then Jesus says something very important at the end of verse 26. He says, with men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Friends, we're very grateful that it is possible for the rich man to be saved. God's grace is enough to save the rich man. You have the examples in the Bible of the rich man like Zacchaeus, of Joseph of Arimathea, of Barnabas. These were all rich men who were able to put God first and not their riches. You see, Jesus is not trying to tell us that all poor people go to heaven and no rich people go to heaven. No, no, no. That would leave out people like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, to to say nothing of David and Solomon and many people in the New Testament that I just mentioned. No, no, no. This, This is the question, is that it's easy to put riches in front of God. It's easy to do that. And it's hard to keep them in the proper place. Now, verse 27. Then Peter answered and said to him, I love this 
This is one of my favorite passages in the whole gospel. See, we have left all and followed you. Therefore, what shall we have? Isn't that wonderful of Peter? Just so blunt, so open, so honest. You know, there's that rich young ruler and he went away. Jesus, he wouldn't give up everything and follow you. But we did. We did. Now, of course, they didn't have nearly as much to give up, right? You know, but whatever they had, they gave up, I suppose. Whatever careers were going on, you know, they they left aside some fishing nets and maybe a boat or two or something like that. You know, it wasn't a great sacrifice as much as the rich young ruler. But boy, they're saying, listen, Jesus, we did what the rich young ruler would not do. So, so therefore, what are we going to have? So let, again, back to verse 27. Then Peter answered and said to him, See, we have left all and followed you. Therefore, what shall we have? Jesus said to them, Surely I say to you that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. So what's Jesus's answer to Peter's very bold and, you know, reckless question? Well, what do we get, Jesus? What's in it for us? Jesus says, you're going to get a special honor. You who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, drudging the 12 tribes of Israel. You disciples, you will have a special role in the future judgment, probably in the sense that they will have some special administration in the millennial kingdom of Jesus. Oh, these apostles, these disciples, they get great honor honor. They have the honor of helping to provide a singular foundation for the church. They even have a special tribute in the New Jerusalem. The Bible tells us in Revelation chapter 20, verse 14, that in the New Jerusalem, there are 12 foundations, and on each foundation is written one of the apostles of the Lamb. Of course, there's a difficult question there, right? Because we know that there were 11 disciples and one who betrayed Jesus, right? And then they replaced Judas in Acts chapter 1 with a guy named Matthias. But, but some people think that was illegitimate for a lot of reasons I won't get into. I don't necessarily think it was illegitimate, but many people do. And they say, no, no, it's actually Paul who should have been the 12th apostle, the one who replaced Judas. So listen, when you get to heaven, go look at the foundations and the name on each one, and you'll count them all up and see who number 12 is. I suspect it'll have the name Matthias on it, but you just check and make sure when you get to heaven. Anyway, what a great honor that these guys have. A tremendous honor. I mean, they're going to get to judge Israel in a special way. They they, they laid a foundation for the church, and they are literally commemorated in the foundation of the heavenly city. And Jesus goes on, listen, this reward isn't just for you, it's for everybody. Verse 29 Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters. By the way, I love how Jesus puts this, does he not? He does not claim that the only sacrifice that somebody makes for the kingdom that's painful is financial. There are many people who make great sacrifices for the kingdom of God that have very little to do with their bank account. 
But they make sacrifices by, by going away to different places, by being with different people, by leaving their family, by doing this, by putting themselves in new or dangerous or different situations. They, they leave, as Jesus said here, houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mother or wife or children or lands. They do those kinds of things. And Jesus here, he says, that there will be universal honor for all who sacrifice for Jesus' sake. Whatever has been given to him will be given back a hundred times over in addition to eternal life. Now think about that. You understand what Jesus is saying? He's saying, you cannot give up more for me than I will return to you. There's a great principle here, isn't it? It's that God will never be in debt to any man. It is impossible to outgive God. No way. You give God, and it doesn't matter if you're talking about material things, it doesn't matter if you're laying down, as Jesus said here, brothers, sisters, lands, homes, whatever, wives, you lay it down for God, and God will reward you more than you have given up for Him. And how much more? Much more. He said a hundredfold. Now, might I say here that this promise of a hundredfold return is obviously not literal in a material sense. Otherwise, someone who left their mother for the sake of serving God, let's say on a foreign field, Jesus promises them a hundred mothers. That would be weird. Even weirder for the guy who says, well, Jesus, I gave up my wife for serving your kingdom. Now where's my hundred wives, right? No, Jesus isn't speaking in a literal material sense. But the idea is very plain. Jesus will do more than just make up what we have given for his sake. But the return may be spiritual instead of material. A hundredfold is certainly literally true in the spiritual sense. One of these old commentators that I like to read, a guy named Matthew Poole, he describes some of the ways that we get our hundredfold return. He says, listen, we have joy in the Holy Ghost, peace of conscience in the sense of God's love. We have contentment, a contented frame of mind. We, we have the fact that God will stir up the hearts of other people to supply our wants and with the supply will be sweeter to them than their abundance was. And that God sometimes does repay us in this life as he restored Job after his trial to great riches. And it's true. Listen, just because the hundredfold promise isn't literally true in a material sense, it doesn't mean that it's never fulfilled because sometimes it is literally fulfilled for people. And I think it's glorious. But the principle stands God will be a debtor to no man. It is impossible for us to give more to God than he gives back to us. Right, but we can't leave this chapter without taking a look at verse 30. Jesus says something, it's, it's cryptic. He promises them reward, right? Hey, disciples, Peter, you asked me, what are you going to get for giving up all this stuff for me? Peter, let me tell you something. You will be rewarded. Man, you're going to be sitting on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. You're going to be honored. And everybody who gives up anything will be honored for me. But, but, verse 30, many who are first will be last and the last first. Again, in the previous words, 
Jesus promised that those who sacrifice for his sake and for the sake of his kingdom, he promised that they would be rewarded. Then he said that though they would be rewarded, it would be different than the way that man usually expects. Listen, I don't know about you, but the way it usually works in life, can I just be honest with you? The way it usually works in life is that the first are first and the last are last. That's what it means to be first or last, right? And Jesus said, well, listen, that might be true generally, but in the way I reward, there's going to be some surprises. You see, we usually believe that the first will be first and the last will be last, but the parable in the following chapter is going to illustrate this. Let's go right into it. Chapter 20, verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Now, when he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into the vineyard. You know, like many of Jesus' parables, this is a story about an employer who wanted people to work for him. And so Jesus is using this parable to answer the question from Matthew 19, 27. The, the question, see, we have left all and followed you, therefore what shall we have? So first he promised them reward, and then he gives them a warning that God's manner of distributing reward is not necessarily the way that men do, do, do it. Now, again, verse 1, the landowner goes out, he hires laborers for his vineyard, and he does it early in the morning. Literally, it's at dawn, usually reckoned to be about 6 o'clock in the morning. These workers were hired at the very beginning of the day, and if you notice there, verses 1 and 2, it tells you that they agreed to work for a denarius a day that was the common wage for a working man. Okay, nothing unusual about it. Okay, you work for me a whole day, I'll give you a day's wage. Great. Verse 3. Then he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace and said to them, you also go into the vineyard and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Again, he went out about the sixth and the ninth hour and did likewise. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing idle and said to them, Why have you been standing here idle all day? And they said to him, Because no one hired us. He said to them, You also go into the vineyard and whatever is right, you will receive. It's very interesting. Some Bible commentators will tell you that when they received the crops from a vineyard in those days, that when the crop reached maturity, it was absolutely essential to get it in as quickly as possible. By the way, I have some friends, they tell me that they get seasonal employment down in the southern part of Germany every time that the crops come in because they need workers and a lot of them and they'll pay a good price to get people out there to pick the grapes off the vineyards. Well, this is exactly what was happening here. The guy needed workers. So it wasn't just the guys that he hired at 6 o'clock in the morning. He goes back at 9 a.m. And then he goes back at noon. And then he goes back at 5 in the evening. And throughout all the day, the master's going back to the place where the laborers gather the vineyard, or the, the marketplace, I should say. And he sends them out to do the work in the vineyard. Now notice, in verse 4 and in verse 7... He promises them a wage. What does he promise? Does he promise them a denarius? 
The, the guy who comes and starts work at noon in the middle of the day, or the guy who starts work at five o'clock, does he promise them a denarius? No. What does he promise them? Look at verse four and verse seven. He says, whatever is right, I will give you. Whatever is right, you will receive. You see, the landowner promised these earliest workers a day's wage. The earliest workers. But the other workers hired through the day were not promised a specific wage. He just told them, you work for me and whatever's fair, I'll give you. Now, if you normally would work for a denarius for a whole day, and you worked half a day, how much would you expect to receive? Half a denarius, right? Whatever's fair, I'll give. that's just the expectation. Verse 8. So when evening had come, the owner of the vineyard said to his steward, call the laborers and give them their wages, beginning with the last to the first. And when those came who had hired about the eleventh hour, they each received a denarius. But when the first came, they supposed that they would receive more, and they likewise received each a denarius. Again, now do you see how this parable is beginning to explain the first shall be last and the last shall be first? Because verse 8 tells us that the master said, call the laborers and give them their wages, beginning with the last to the first. Okay, it's time to pay them at the end of the day, which, by the way, was very customary practice in the ancient world. You got paid at the end of every working day. And so it's time to pay them. Who does he pay first? The last people to come to work. And so what does he do? He gives these people who worked last. Can you just imagine a long line of workers ready there to get paid? You know, they're ready there waiting for the money. And you're at the back of the line because you started at 6 o'clock in the morning. And all of a sudden, you see guys coming from the pay table, and they're so happy, they're so excited. And, and what are you so excited about? He goes, man, I worked for two hours, and he paid me for a whole day. And you think, wow. Well, he's going to pay me for more than a day, you would think, right? That's what it says in verse 10. They supposed that they would receive more, Right? And it gave them time to think about it, right? Because they're standing in line. And they're thinking, oh, he's giving them all so much. And now we're the guys. Let's say there were 10 of you who came on at 6 o'clock in the morning. And all you 10, you know, yeah, we're the 6 o'clock guys. We're going to get a lot of money. Yes, this is great. And then finally you get up there and you, verse 10, they supposed that they would receive more. But then they didn't. They, verse 10, likewise received a denarius. They got paid exactly what the landowner promised to them, right? The landowner did exactly what he promised. But the supposition of more pay than was promised disappointed these men. So they complained. Verse 11. I mean, by the way, you could just imagine this in your job, right? There you are, you work in your little cubicle, you know, there you are in your job, you, all these cubicles there in your office, and you're there working at your cubicle, and it's payday, and the boss is out, you know, he's handing out paychecks to everybody, or pay statements, and then suddenly the guy in the next cubicle, you just hear him go, Yahoo! Yahoo! What, what's going on? And he goes, I got a 500 euro bonus in my check. You go, wow, isn't that fantastic? And you open up your check, and it your check's just what you should get, right? Now, instantly, are you overjoyed for your colleague who just got the 500 euros? No, you are angry that you didn't get it, right? 
right? What, actually, what harm has been done to you? None. But there's just something very instinctive in human character, right? It would drive you crazy, wouldn't it? What drove these guys crazy? Verse 11. And when they had received it, they complained against the landowner, saying, These last men have worked only one hour, and you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them and said, Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go your way. I wish to give to this last man the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things? Or is your eye evil because I am good? So these men, these men who came at the very beginning of the day, the men who had worked longest, the six o'clock men, they, after they were paid, they took up their complaint with the landowner. By the way, it's interesting. The landowner gave the, 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 uh, the, uh, the foreman or the supervisor the job of handing out the money. But it seems like the landowner just stood by and watched with a big smile on his face. He wanted to see what happened. And so immediately after the picket, they come up to him and they say, listen, th- this isn't fair. It's not fair that, that, that those who work less were equal to us who had borne the burden and the heat of the day. Again, it's easy to sympathize with these men who had worked all day. They worked while other people were idle. They worked in the heat of the day while other guys were sitting under shade. Yet they were paid exactly the same. What's the response? Verse 13. Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? The landowner reminded them that he had been completely fair to them. He did them no wrong and he had broken no promise. And a matter of fact, he says, I wish to give to this last man the same as to you. The the landowner did nothing to explain why he did it, right? He didn't explain. Well, Mr. Landowner, why? 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 No, he said, I wish to do it. Why did you do it? Well, I wanted to. Well, why? I wished. I wanted to. Understand, the reasons for the landowner's generosity were completely within the landowner, not in the people who worked for him, right? He didn't say, well, you know, those guys who I hired last in the day, they're cousins of mine. No, he didn't say that. Uh, I really like their clothes. No, he didn't say that. He didn't say, you know, any one of excuses. No, he said, I wanted to. That's the only reason. Then he said something very heavy in verse 15. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things? Or is your eye evil because I am good? The landowner rebuked them for their jealousy and resentment of the landowner's generosity towards others. And he claimed his right to do what he wanted with what was his. By the way, don't get tripped up by the phrase, the evil eye. That was just an expression of speech used to describe a jealous or envious eye. Are you jealous because I'm generous with other people? Now let's bring it first full circle here, verse 16. So the last will be first, and the first last, for many are called, but few chosen. 
Listen, Peter and the disciples knew that they had given up a lot to follow Jesus. And Peter asked the question, well, what do we get in return, right? That was his question. Through this parable, Jesus assured Peter and the disciples, you are going to get rewarded, but you're going to get rewarded according to the principle of many who are first will be last and the last first. Here's the idea. God may not reward the way man expects. Very interesting parable, don't you think? Some people think that this parable speaks of the way that people come to God at different stages of their life. Right? Somebody might come when they're a very young child, others in their youth, others in adulthood, others in old age, others at the very end. There are other people who think that this parable refers to how the gospel first dawned with John the Baptist, and then the preaching of Jesus, and then the preaching of Pentecost, then to the Jews, and finally to the Gentiles. I don't really think that the parable is really talking about either one of those things. I think that the best way to understand this parable is to understand it's simply a parable about the principle of grace and reward. You see, these disciples should expect to be rewarded, but they should not be surprised on the day when God distributes rewards if he does it in unexpected ways. And that's what it means. The last will be first, the first last. This is the essence of God's grace, where he blesses and rewards man according to his will and pleasure, not necessarily according to what men deserve. You see, the system of law is easy to figure out. You know what the system of law is? You get what you deserve. Now listen, you may not like that system, but at least it's comfortable, isn't it? You know how it works. There's no real surprises, right? You get what you deserve. And by the way, I think that that's a valid thing to teach, for example, our children. I want my children growing up thinking that they get what they deserve in life. That, that if you want success, you better work hard. And if you don't put your heart and mind and energy into things, you're not going to go for That's the lesson I want my children to learn. But listen, the kingdom of God, it doesn't work like that. The system of grace is foreign to us because in the system of grace, God deals with us according to who he is, not according to who we are and what we have done. Now, it's very important to see in this parable that the landowner did not treat anybody unfairly. He was more generous to some people than he was to others, but, but we can be assured that God will never ever be unfair to us. Though he may, for his own purpose, for his own pleasure, he may put greater blessing on somebody else who seems less deserving. You see, the point of the parable isn't that everybody has the same reward. Although it is significant that everybody who goes to heaven goes to the same heaven, right? But, but in heaven, we will have reward in different measures, but the point is that God rewards on the principle of grace, and therefore we should expect surprises. He's never less than fair, but he reserves the right to be more than fair as pleases him. Listen, if, uh, 
if God is using a man or a woman in a wonderful way in his kingdom, the tendency is that man or woman wants you to think, even if it's just unconscious, they want you to think that the reason God is using them is because they're so holy, because they're so righteous. You know what? It may not be that way at all. And you know what? God has really used some strange, um, let's just say problematic people. And he's really used them. And what do you do with that? You stand back and you scratch your head and you say, Lord, it's of grace. Now look, let me make it clear. This parable is not a perfect illustration of God's grace because the principle of working and deserving is involved. Some people think that grace means God giving you more than you deserve. And that's not really the principle of grace. The principle of grace is not God giving you more than you deserve. It's giving to you apart from what you deserve or don't deserve. Grace doesn't say you don't deserve it. Grace just doesn't care. Grace gives... Because the motive is in the giver, not in the receiver. But living under grace is sort of a two-edged sword. We all want to say, hey, do you want to live under grace and not law? Yes, yes, I want to live under grace. Well, under grace, you can't come to God complaining, don't I deserve better than this? Because then you know what God will say? Oh, does this mean that you really want me to give you what you deserve. You see, this is it. I I see, you know, here I am. I'm a man in ministry. And and I see a colleague some other place. And oh, he's being blessed. And I know that his life is messed up. I know he's not a terribly righteous man. And yet God is just blessing him so much. And I just, God, Lord, it's not fair. God, why are you blessing him so much? And God just says, oh, oh, is that how it is now, David? You want me to bless on whether or not you deserve it. And therefore, I should only bless him more if he deserves to be blessed more. Well, no, Lord, that's not what I'm saying at all. Right? I instantly have to back away from that, do I not? Because it's all of grace. Grace should be manifested in all of our life, but especially in the way that we serve God. And it especially tells us, We should never be jealous of other people, not if they have greater gifts, not if they have greater blessings, not if God uses them more. And if God uses you more, don't you dare be proud, right? Those guys who walked away from the money table, the guys who got paid first, the 11th hour guys, they walked away with the whole days of pay. Was there anything in them that deserved that? Not one thing. Why did they get it? Because the landowner wanted to give it, and that's it. It was wrong for the guys who worked all day to be envious and jealous. It was also wrong if the guys who got paid first, who only worked an hour or two, it would be wrong for them to be proud. Let me read you now at the end here a quote from Charles Spurgeon about this. I think he gives a good insight on this. He says, My last word to God's children is this. What does it matter then, whether we are first or whether we are last? Do not let us dwell too much upon it, for we shall all share the honor given to each. 
When we are converted, we become members of Christ's living body. And as we grow in grace and get the true spirit of that all through the body, we shall say, when any member of it is honored, this is honor for us. If any brother shall be greatly honored of God, I feel honored in his honor. If God shall bless your brother and make him ten times more useful than you are, then you see that he is blessing you. Not only blessing him, but you. If my hand has something in it, my foot does not say, oh, I have not got it. For if my hand has it, my foot has it. It belongs to the whole of my body. So now I look across to my colleague, you know, in some other place who's blessed. And, and, and do I, get, I say, well, Lord, I tell you what, you're honoring him. And I share in the same honor. Thank you, Jesus. At the very end, Jesus said, Many are called, but few chosen. This was said in the context of this illustration of grace. Jesus emphasized that both the calling of God and the choosing of God is based upon his grace, especially his choosing. Friends, this is something dear to my heart, and I want it to be dear to yours, too. This idea of the grace of God, and that we should not live our life with God on this principle of law, where the keys to it are earning and deserving. No, we should live with God on the principle of grace, where the principles are believing and receiving. Our God is a great God of grace. And he wants us to fill our wants it to fill our lives. That means we're not jealous. And it means we're not proud. That's the way to receive grace. Well, Father, that's our prayer. We think of you such a gracious God. And we know, Lord, how you have been so kind to us in the ways you have blessed us when we have not been deserving. And Lord, when we think of that kindness, well, Lord, only we know just how undeserving we actually are. But Lord, um, if we receive your grace, we want to receive the grace as well to change our minds, our hearts, so that we're open and that we're never jealous of how you use or bless our brothers and sisters. But Lord, neither are we ever proud for blessing we have received. At the end of it all, we say, it is all of your grace. And with that, we bless you, Lord Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.